The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome back. Those of you who are not new, if you're new, welcome. And um, like we have these last few weeks, if you want to start off with any questions you might have or reports about how the meditation is going at home, you're welcome to bring something up. Questions about the instructions? Was it useful to get instructions on thinking? So, uh, Gil, I had a quick question, or maybe you can give us some tips about how to discern your thoughts when you are in a mode, when you feel that your thinking can solve your problems. Any any tips regarding how, how to find out, you know, these thoughts are useful because you kind of rely on thinking to solve your problems, you know, how to be away from them, or any tips will help, be helpful. So I'm not quite understanding the question. So one, one question is, um, how do you distinguish between thinking that's useful and thinking which is not useful? Right? Yeah. Can we st- 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 focus on that question? Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, you're going to have to use your best judgment for that. However, uh, in meditation, one of the nice things about meditation practice, that's a time where we don't have to think about anything that's outside of meditation. And so it's a training to learn how to uh, have the ability to let go of your thoughts. And that's like strengthening a muscle. You learn how to recognize thoughts, you learn how to not be caught by them, and you learn to let go of them. And the stronger you exercise that muscle in meditation, then you have more control or more power outside of meditation. You'll notice, you notice your thinking more clearly. You'll notice it quicker. And you'll be able to, if you decide it's not useful, you can say, you know, I can let go. I have to do something else right now. And, um, and generally, if you've had the same thought 10,000 times, it's probably not useful to do a 10,001. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's so repetitive what they think all the time, right? And so... Um, so that's one criteria. The other criteria is at the right time for it. Uh, you know, so you know if you're if you're caring for a relative who's dying, it's not the time to start thinking about your taxes. Um, I had a question about um, how mindfulness of emotions and mindfulness of thinking can can intersect, or maybe how some of the methods you suggest and how they connect. Yeah, I was thinking about the. I, I find the the sort of the one second flashlight yeah. really helpful for thinking, and then sort of like feeling out the ninety seconds or whatever the emotion very helpful but I have one of these kind of obsessive like nagging like this bothers me sort of thought and I I thought a lot of the sort of um, the toothpaste uh, analogy (laughs) that you made of you know something is squeezing the thought out so even if you recognize it a million times it keeps coming out and so then I would try and think okay so what is it what is this emotion that's behind it and then I found myself kind of analyzing the emotion and thinking about it more Uh, so I was just kind of were you able to identify the emotion I don't think so okay so, the, because the way, to, the, I mean, mindfulness of emotions, it's very useful. Many thoughts, especially if they're repetitive, 
have some kind of uh, emotional basis for them. It's often fueling them and keeping them going. So you want to, it helps to find where, you know, identify the thinking or be mindful, identify the emotion or be mindful of the emotion. But sometimes it's not clear what emotion it is. It's just, you just feel yucky. You you feel something very vague. You feel like some, you know, it's more like a pressure or a tension someplace. Um, That's good enough. Uh, as soon as you can locate it in the body, then you can hold it in awareness. And that tends to uh, shift the focus away from the thinking to uh, what's a little bit more basic. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. I once remember I had... um, I remember once I just had... uh, I just... I, I knew I felt off. And so I looked around to see, what is off like? Where does that feel? And what, what part of my body is off? And, and it certainly wasn't my little toe. And so I was able to kind of slowly kind of whittle away all the places where it didn't feel off until I found it was in my chest. And then as I stayed there and just felt that feeling of offness, then at some point the, the emotion I had became clear. And then something relaxed. I heard your instruction about um, getting sleepy, and uh, one one instruction instructions was to get sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> one instruction was open open your eyes yeah. and look look down. Uh-huh, yeah, and another was uh, stand up. Right. So, even in the middle of a you know of a sitting, just stand up. Is up. Yeah, if, if it's better than the alternative, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can do, you can do standing meditation. There are four postures for meditation: sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. So you can uh, s- just stand and continue the practice standing. Mm-hmm. And most people find that um, they're less likely to fall asleep. There's more energy. Your body's more engaged and active to kind of stay upright, and um, it's kind of far to fall. Mm-hmm. I had an, a question on etiquette, and I actually I asked Kim about it, and it's about you know if i'm if i'm cold and i you know i have this hoodie and i'm trying to stay warm is it some kind of disrespectful she said wearing a hood or a hat in a, with a monastic oh yeah um, so how about here i don't care <laughs> <laughs> i don't say, i don't take it as a sign of disrespect okay thank you So, so, welcome back. So, uh, I thought we would uh, start with a meditation. And a kind of meditation that kind of does a review of the instructions we've had so far. So, for that purpose, take a comfortable, alert posture. And gently close your eyes. And then feel your sitting bones on your chair or your cushion. And see if you can just uh, rock back and forth a little bit or forward and back, sideways, to get yourself really aligned well, 
your weight on your sitting bones. So you have a nice firm base. And then from that base, maybe sit a little bit straighter with your spine than you normally would, especially between the shoulder blades. And then take a few long, slow, deep breaths as you breathe in, expanding the rib cage, the shoulders. And a deeper exhale, fuller exhale. Let go. With the in-breath, feeling your body here and now. On the exhale, letting go of the concerns of the day. So you can be more here, present. And then let your breathing return to normal. And you might take a few moments to scan through your body to see if there's any obvious places muscle groups that you can relax, soften. You might be able to soften around the face, the jaw. You might be able to relax a little bit in your eyes. And then your eyes rest in the sockets. Softening in the shoulders. And softening the belly. And at the center of the meditation that we teach here is breathing. And rather than being in the control tower of the head, staring down at your body breathing, see if you can feel how the body experiences breathing. the movements of the body as you breathe. The various sensations of breathing breathing that come and go. Perhaps the sensation of the air going in and out through your nostrils.
being aware of the body breathing and becoming attuned to how there's a rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. There's a rhythm of different sensations in the body coming and going as you breathe. every time you exhale, letting go of your thoughts, letting them drift away. For a few moments, let the thinking mind become quiet so there's more space in awareness to feel the breathing. The less the mental landscape is taken up with thinking, the clearer the awareness can be when it focuses on breathing. And then as you're sitting here, you might become aware of the strongest sensation in your body. It doesn't have to be particularly strong. It could be the breathing. And in a relaxed way, be aware of that sensation. as if it has permission to be there. While you experiment with a simple awareness of it, simple mindfulness,
feeling the texture of it or the different characteristics of it, not by thinking about it, but with a quiet mind, sensing the strongest sensation in your body. And if it persists, you might breathe through that part of your body. Sometimes breathing, imagining the breath goes through it, is a way of being present for it without getting entangled with it. And then bring your attention back fully to the breathing, centering yourself on the experience of breathing, the rhythm of breathing. And then as you continue now, <clears throat> notice the, what's the most predominant mood or emotion that's here for you. It could be very subtle. Could be that you feel some agitation or some calmness, some anxiety or some peace. Some feeling of well-being or some feeling of unease. Whatever way you're feeling, <clears throat> experiment to see if you can be aware of it, mindful of it, 
very simply, without an agenda or judgments, without adding meaning to it, notice the emotion, the mood that you have, and for a few moments hold it in awareness. Especially if you can feel how it's expressed in your body. And then coming back to your breathing. Perhaps as you exhale, let go fully as you exhale, release the air. And let go of your thoughts as you recenter yourself on breathing. And even if it's just for a moment, see if you can let the mind become quiet so that you can better feel or sense the experience of breathing. And if there's a lot of thinking, take a few moments to let go of your breathing and look thinking right in the eye. Recognize clearly that you're thinking, mindfulness of thinking. Not to be against thinking or for it, not to be involved or to be bothered by it but in relaxed observation, using the one second flashlight, thinking, thinking, And then return to your breathing. To let breathing be the center of it all, the home base for awareness.
And if while you're sitting here, body sensations or emotions or thoughts or sounds become compelling, you can let go of breathing and be mindful of those other things. And when they're no longer compelling, let that quiet mindfulness return to breathing. And then to end this sitting, (coughs) 
you can take a few long, slow, deep breaths. Feeling your body against the chair or the floor or your cushion. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So that was a way of um, <clears throat> bringing together the different instructions from the first four weeks. And, uh, and have one way that they can work together. The basic principle in the mindfulness that we teach is that we want to learn how to be mindful of any human experience you can have. And uh, which is pretty wide ranging, right? <clears throat> When I was practicing in the monasteries in Burma and being taught this practice, um, at some point um, I was, you know, learning how to bring kind of a high quality attention to whatever was happening in the moment. And at some point I recognized that there was a kind of freedom in a moment of mindfulness. Somehow when I was clearly aware, the operating principle is clearly aware, that uh, I wasn't entangled in what was happening. If I heard a sound, I, could, I would be entangled if I started thinking, well, what are we doing have a meditation center in the middle of an urban area and we chose the wrong place and then I'm caught up, you know, where there's a lot of street sounds, then I'm caught in it. But if I clearly just hear the sound like of the car, just sound, very clear. I'm not in the sound. I'm not entangled in the sound. I'm not defining myself by the sound. There's a kind of a freedom there. Same thing with an emotion. <clears throat> if I can really be clearly aware of the emotion without getting stories or judgments or adding meaning to it, without having preferences, then there's a clear awareness of it that's independent, that's free of the emotion. And many people don't know how to be free of an emotion because every emotion is like meaningful and you have to get somehow get involved in. So I, was, I got a sense of that and then I realized that if I could be mindful in every situation I come to, I could be free in every situation I came to. And that just made me so happy. I just felt so happy, wow. I didn't, I didn't know if you know, it was up to the task of everywhere but in principle, I knew that freedom was possible. And in fact, as I continued practicing, more and more of that freedom became more common, more and more common. And it's been one of the great gifts of mindfulness is to have the freedom not to be grabbed by the nose, the metaphoric nose of the, you know, pulled around by our thoughts and our preferences, our judgments and our agendas, but be able to sit back and just see. And, and the advantage of that is there can be a lot more wisdom can be a lot more creativity and, uh, and a lot more choice. Because if you see you have choice, then you have choice. If you don't see you have choice, there is no choice. And uh, so you come to a, driving your car down the road and 
you see the red light ahead, you realize you have a choice of whether to stop for the red light or not. But if you don't think you have a choice, then you just go, go right through until the police officer has a choice with you. Or you feel like you want to say something to a friend that's maybe not very nice. And you see it clearly occurring and you say, I have a choice of whether I say this or not. And so you don't. But if you don't see you have a choice, you don't even see that you're about to say something, you could spend the next 10 years regretting what you just said. And if you don't see the place of choice, you have no choice. So by settling, by developing the mindfulness and being more and more aware of the different circumstances we're in, we have certainly more choice, more wisdom, more ability to see clearly what's really going, under the, going on under the, under the surface. What are the thoughts, the beliefs, the emotions that drive us, that influence us? What are the different ways that we react to responses in the world? So this um, <clears throat> art of learning to pay attention to all of our human experience opens up our human experience in a very rich way. It starts becoming like three-dimensional. It's very nice and very helpful. So what I mostly taught you these uh, weeks is mindfulness and meditation. The difference between meditation and daily life is rather arbitrary. It's kind of an artificial line. And it made a big difference for me when I started meditating regularly. When at some point I was meditating and I was getting a lot of benefits from the meditation. I felt much more centered. I felt calmer. I felt more uh, integrated. Was, uh, I, felt, I felt I had much more integrity when I, when in my meditation I had outside of meditation. And I really valued what was happening to me. And then it dawned on me at one point, um, why should I only be that way in my meditation? Why can't I be that way the rest of my life? Isn't that kind of arbitrary, the line, meditation and not meditation? And so then I became interested in bringing the practice, the mindfulness, to my daily life, to my conversations with people, with work. I was a student then, so my studies. And, um, you know, my, 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 the, the different, all the things I was doing. And then it had a whole new dimension of practice to be able to bring careful attention to these different parts and, and to have gotten the hang of learning to notice my thoughts, my emotions, my body sensation was going my body in real time. If I catch it and see what's going on while it's going on, then I'm less likely to be pushed around by it. I'm less likely caught in it and, and you know, entangled with it. And I'm much less likely to get stressed. And so I started to train myself to be more present and aware in my daily life as well. And that's been a really rewarding thing to do. And then if you want to do the advanced training, you try to be mindful when you're speaking. That's where people often get pulled into what they're saying and they kind of lose certain kind of self-awareness in the process of it because we're so into it, we're so motivated and and so we lose, it's very fascinating to watch how we lose touch with it. If you know how to be in touch with your body and centered in your body and you start speaking, how much you not in your body. Sometimes you can see it in people, they're leaning forward and they're not really at, at rest in themselves. So uh, one of the ways to uh, develop, so there's a number of ways of developing this mindfulness further. So one way is to meditate more. And, uh, and some people find that uh, you know, 20 minutes a day works really nice. 
Some people will do 40 minutes a day. Some people will do two sessions of meditation a day, and that works really well. And if you're interested in meditation, I'd encourage you to experiment with different lengths of time, different times a day, um, maybe more than once a day even. Experiment and see what the benefits are. Some people, like most people around here, are very busy, so I don't have time to meditate. But you might find that you have more time after you meditate. That there's something, there's a magic alchemy or chemistry uh, with our relationship to time and things we have to do that when we calm down and settle, there's suddenly there's much more space. The mind is not claustrophobic anymore. And it's uh, much more kind of feels like, oh, I, I have lots of time. And, and also I think uh, that people tend to do things more efficiently when they're calm. And, uh, and there's, there's a lot of inefficiencies that go on in our life. And uh, so experiment, see what it's like for you. And you might find that the benefits of sitting, meditating more outweigh the losses that come from it, that you know, takes up your time or something. The, um, there's other ways of meditating more. One of them is to uh, uh, go on meditation retreats. So here at IMC we have uh, half day, we call half day retreats sometimes, and we have all day retreats. And you can come and just uh, meditate with a group of people and uh, practice developing your practice uh, with the support of others who are doing the same. And some people find that really helpful, a big boost to their practice. We also have uh, residential retreats that are <coughs> up to a week long that we teach. And uh, people come and they're in silence for a week and in community and, and uh, practicing mindfulness and developing it. And the, the alchemy of mindfulness is that it tends to get stronger. And we learn h- how it works in a deeper way when we're able to pr- do it and live in silence, or mostly silence, for a number of days. And so many people in our tradition here just love it's a bit of a quieter taste. People are not used to it, but it's a the people you tend to really love it. That chance to the intimacy and the depth and the, that comes the stillness that comes from being on retreat. The other whole way to develop the practice is, in fact, to practice in daily life. To uh, be mindful as you drive your car, and uh, certainly you can be uh, it's, you're more going to be more mindful driving if you're not on the phone. You know, just just. You know, just drive. Uh, it's nice, uh, uh, mindfulness exercise, to eat a meal in silence. If you're going to eat alone anyway, <clears throat> don't have the radio on, don't have the computer on, don't have you know, and just see what it's like just to eat. And you, some of us will notice a great urge to get something done, great urge to get the information, you know, fill the time, be entertained, do something. And it's, it's a very co- contagious and compelling, this, and I think more so with devices now than ever before, that we have access to email all the time. And I better check, and something's going on. And you don't want to have you know, idle time when you can check the news. And, um, but to eat, eat, uh, eat a meal in silence and really track what's going on in a deeper way. And you might see how addicted we are to these things and how, compel, compel, how much compulsion is involved. We might get interested in a life that's free of compulsion. And we might also start enjoying eating in a whole different way. And a much more radical thing we might do is discover that we like being with ourselves. One of the goals of meditation is to help you become your own best friend. 
So you just like being with yourself. I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be cool? You know, you don't have to call up yourself and say, hey, <laughs> you want to get, get together? And uh, certainly, you know, I started off my meditation uh, practice without a friendly relationship to myself. And I came to it after a while. Now I feel very friendly and we get, we get along really well. The, um, so meals, um, uh, there might be all kinds of activities in daily life that are really conducive to supporting you to do it in a mindful way. Just, just, which means really just do the activity and be really present for it and attentive to it. And all the things that I've been t- I taught you about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of emotions and thinking, all that applies to washing dishes. You know, because you might be doing the dishes, but then you find yourself really what's going on is you feel you're, you're, you're ruminating about work or some difficult conversation you have. And so then you notice that and then you come back to just washing the dishes. And then you find that you have a lot of impatience about the dishes because they're important websites to visit. And so you're trying, you know, so then you notice the impatience and you learn how to be with the impatience just there. And it can seem kind of trite, the idea of just being with the dishes, just washing dishes, in the pots, or whatever you're doing. And, um, but uh, in and of itself, perhaps it's a simple and ordinary and, you know, you're not going to get wealthy or famous or washing your dishes. But uh, it's a way of developing an inner life. It's a way of developing a deeper connection to yourself that opens up to a universe inside of, uh, of the mind, of freedom, of love, of compassion, of creativity, of equanimity, of joy. It's amazing what's in here waiting for us. And if we, you know, you know, you, you have a choice, right? You can go to the website and check it out, or you can cultivate this inner life. And so it's possible to cultivate that inner, inner life washing dishes or cooking a meal or cleaning the kitchen floor or scrubbing the toilet or all these different brushing your teeth. And, um, and uh, so people who tend to med- start meditating and get into it start finding it starts growing and this uh, connection to this inner life grows and grows and grows. And then some people can think, well, it's selfish to be involved in the inner life. It sounds like you're withdrawing from the world. But what happens is that as we heal and reconcile and open up and discover this inner, inner world, um, it, we get turned inside out. And when we get turned inside out, it's kind of like the, all the sensitive parts then are tuned into the world. And rather than going having a deep inner life, it's like the whole life starts feeling rich and, and deep in itself. And then we're in the world in a whole different way that we've, we've learned to do it from doing, going in and getting settled and calm. Part of the function of um, doing this practice in Buddhism is to get enlightened, to have deep spiritual maturation it can seem like a very the prince basic principles of mindfulness are very simple, and, and all of us, most of us, know now that it's it's kind of widely spread in in uh, popular culture now, in all kinds of clinical places, and there's uh, you know a slew of apps, mindfulness apps you can get, and I mean the amount of mindfulness out there is just phenomenal these days. 
And so, you know, it could be very simple. Uh, the, um, but in Buddhism, it's meant to be uh, for the purposes of really full, full awakening, full enlightenment. It can take, a, take us to profound, profound depths of freedom and of inner life. So it's maybe a little bit deceiving how simple it is, but th- th- what's, uh, to, to really let it grow to its full potential, it's to let it become a continuous part of one's daily life. So it's really there. We're coming back to it, we're staying present to it, we stay connected to it. And then it begins, something di- deep begins to shift and change within us when we have this continuity. I don't know if this is an f- f- uh, appropriate analogy, but it would be kind of like... Um, um, if you kept the doors of your house open, eventually a lot of wonderful people will visit you. You know, just if you keep the doors of your heart open, a lot of wonderful things will come. So the cultivation of wisdom, and uh, so one of the functions of mindfulness is just to have insight. Uh, insight being a particular kind of wisdom where we really see the nature of things much more clearly. And one of the important forms of wisdom and insight we're trying to cultivate and see is uh, something about the tricky nature of concepts and ideas. We live in the world of concepts and ideas. Everything we look around in ordinary urban life um, started off as someone's concept, right? This building, this lights, everything. Someone had to dream up and think about it. And we continue in that vein in that we, we cooperate. You know, we made this a meditation hall and you treat it as a meditation hall, worried about what kind of hats to wear. And, uh, so, the, um, and we, so we live in this world of concepts. And part of what mindfulness does is to highlight that in such a way that we see concepts and ideas as just that. And to realize that uh, we can, part of freedom is to step away from those and see things much more directly. So I wanted to use an analogy. And, uh, and that next to the hearing system device are the flowers. Would you mind bringing them, Tanya? I need the flowers. I forgot to bring them in. <coughs> Thank you. So, um, so I can hold up a flower, and there's a famous Zen story of uh, the Buddha holding up a flower to, instead of giving a whole sermon, he just held up a flower, and um, but only one person in the audience understood. <laughs> so it's a profound teaching to hold up a flower. So just a flower. And you can look at this flower and see the flowerness of this flower. It's a nice flower, I guess. And just a flower, it's nice and good. Stands out and highlight because I'm holding up. Just a flower. Nice, so big deal. But look what I can do. So you see, right, this is a flower, just nice, beautiful flower by itself. But now I can do, I can change the, this nature of this flower. So now I can hold up this flower all these flowers this flower and now 
I can say something different. I can say something new. The flower, though just a flower before, in and of itself, now has become the small flower. Did you see that? Pretty good, huh? (laughs) But now watch. Watch how the magic is done. You got this, right? This is the small flower, and this is the big flower. Is that pretty clear? No doubts? Okay, now watch this. Watch this. (laughs) Did I lie to you? I told you this was the small flower. But it's not the small flower. I apologize. (laughs) It used to be the small flower. So I didn't lie. Now it's the big flower. Big and small do not live in things. They live in our comparisons of things. They're relative concepts. Those are concepts that we add to something. It's partly a choice to compare two flowers. I could compare something else. I don't have to compare it. I can have two flowers next to themselves and my mind doesn't have to make the comparison. It's just one's a flower, one's a flower, and just see it. It's possible to, as we get quieter and the mind gets clearer, it's possible to clearly see the birth, the arising of concepts and see that, oh, that's a concept, that's an idea I have. Now, in terms of flowers, maybe it's not a big deal. A tremendous amount of human suffering comes from comparative thinking. If you just think about what people, maybe some of you, how much suffering there is about uh, our human bodies. I'm too tall, I'm too short, my hair's too this, my hair's too that, my nose is too big, other people have nice, cute, short, small noses, my... You know, my eyebrows are not just quite right. My fingers are too short, too long. You know, it goes on and on, you know, all this. Those are all comparative ideas. Some people suffer a lot about the shape of their hands. But the hand by itself, in and of itself, has no problem by its shape. If you close your eyes and let the hand feel itself, free of the judgments and the comparisons, the hand will just be a hand. It'll just be sensations and feelings. The tyranny of the mind that adds these comparative thoughts and ideas creates so much suffering that actually some people commit suicide because of it. So when we sit back and be mindful and see how it works, and start looking, what's, ha- what's actually the direct experience? What's actually happening now in the experience? Free of the concepts, before the concepts, before the judgments, the world starts becoming more vivid. And it starts becoming more free. And we stop burdening the poor flowers with our judgments. Because some of these judgments we have of people are not just about ourselves, it's also about other people. And we compare other people and that person's not quite up to snuff or that person, you know, whatever. And it, the social world is filled 
with this world of concepts and ideas, bias and prejudices and uh, projections of all kinds on people, to sit quietly and learn to be mindful of feelings and thoughts and, and learn how to see clearly the direct experience of just seeing. We can start, and mind gets quieter, we start seeing, oh, that's just a thought. I don't have to believe it. Or maybe I should check it out or think about it rather than operate on automatic pilot. It's very powerful to do this. So we live with all these things, all these ideas and concepts and burdens that we have with us. And, you know, we put on, our society puts on us and we put on ourselves all these different things. And in Buddhism, at least, this practice of mindfulness is to learn how to shed and take off all these concepts that we're weighed down by. Maybe because it's Halloween today, I'll tell you a fairy tale. This is the sequel to a lot of the fairy tales. The fairy tales that end that the princess meets Prince Charming. So it seems that the monarchs of the two countries decided that the prince, the Prince Charming, sh- should marry the princess. And they had planned a big wedding and they were going to live happily ever after was the plan. It's required when you have a fairy tale. And the, the wedding day came and the princess put on her dress, wedding dress. And, um, but the problem was, it was an arranged marriage. And she didn't want to marry Prince, Char- Prince Charming. He, he wasn't so charming for her. So she was a bit distraught. So she um, didn't know what to do. But she knew about that the outside of town in the woods was this old, wise woman that people often would talk about and praise and say there was, she's full of love. You go to go sit with her and she just loves you. Like you're just like her most important person for her. And um, she's very wise. So the princess thought, I'll go there. I don't know what to do. I don't know, I, I'll just go, maybe she has some way of helping me. And if she can't help me, at least for a moment, I'll be loved by someone. So she goes to visit the old lady in her little, I think these stories, fairy tales, there's just a one-room house, right? In the woods. And uh, she goes there and gets invited in. And um, she tells her story about she's supposed to get married to this guy and she doesn't want to and what is she supposed to do? And the old lady serves her tea and certainly loves her and she feels cared for and feels seen and respected and what should I do about this wedding? And the old old lady says, take off your dress. But you know, she's a woman of decorum, she's a princess. It's kind of awkward just to be standing there in your underwear. But this beautiful, elder, wise woman, of course, you know, she would have to say, do what she asked. So she took off her beautiful wedding dress and it turned out she wasn't standing in her underwear. Now she was standing 
in a nurse's outfit. And she was always helping people. She always felt responsible for everybody, caring for her parents, caring for her siblings, caring for everyone. She was always tired because she always felt it was up to her to be the caretaker. And so she was surprised and she looked down and she looked at the wise woman and the wise woman said, take that off too. So she did. And underneath there, there was a leather jacket and tattoos and nose rings and chains. And, and uh, she was um, rebellious, rebelling against society, her parents acting out. And the elder woman said, take that off too. Took that off and then underneath was almost like a mummy. She was wrapped with all these bandage gauze, gauze, gauze and surgical tape and you know from all the wounds and broken hearts and resentments and grudges she, she had ever had. I mean, it was, she was like a mummy almost. The old lady said, take that off too. And she noticed that as she was taking these things off, she got lighter and lighter, lighter and lighter, and clearer and happier. And she never, she couldn't remember ever feeling this way before. And then she looked down and saw now she had uh, a school outfit for a seven-year-old girl. She remembered wearing that outfit when she was seven how much she tried to please her parents, how she was trying to be a good girl. And the idea of being a good girl, she can get her parents' approval, parents who didn't pay much attention to her because they were busy being monarchs. And so she looked at the old, old wise lady and she said, take that off too. So she was getting kind of nervous because sooner or later there'd be nothing more. So she took that off too. And as she took that off, because it's a fairy tale, um, <laughs> um, it, um, uh, as she took it off, she, uh, this huge fire, bonfire, rose up around her, in her, all around her. It's a big, red, hot fire. She was sitting in this big fire. And as she sat in that fire, all the shame she ever felt fell into the fire and burned up. All the ambitions she ever had fell into the fire and burned up. All the resentments she carried with her fell in and burnt up. All the grudges, all the anxiety and fear she had all the ideas she had to prove herself, all the ideas she wasn't good enough, all the ideas of guilt, all these things started falling into that fire, being burnt up in the fire. And as the fire burnt, the fire got cooler and bluer and bluer until finally it became just a stream of blue water. And as the water got clearer and clearer, the water eventually just settled down and fell down through the cracks of the boards and the floor.
disappeared. And the princess felt so clear, so free, so light. She thought she was going to float away. And she looked around that little house and the old lady was gone. But around her elbow, by by her shoulders, was the shawl that the old lady had worn. And then she looked at the table and on there, there was a card. And the card said, welcome home. And she lived there the rest of her life and people from town would come out to see her and she would love them and look at them and touch people's hearts and from time to time she would offer wisdom and care and from time to time she'd have people take off the roles that they wore, the personas they'd built up over a lifetime. So that's a Halloween story. I hope I didn't scare you too much. But uh, this idea of uh, the power of this practice, to really settle into it, we start meeting ourselves, we start confronting ourselves, we start realizing all the shenanigans, all the personas and ideas and concepts and shoulds and shouldn'ts and all the stuff that we're living on. And sometimes it's, it, it, we see how thick it is. And part of the value of settling down and learning not to think so much, to let go of the thoughts, is so we can see thinking more clearly. See all the things that we're doing. And then learn to put it down. And there's a, in Buddhism at least, mindfulness is partly a shedding process. And we're shedding all that extra stuff that we built up. Shedding it. And in the end, we get to just be here in a very clear, full way. In a way that uh, many people, if they somehow came to it, heard about it, would think was way too boring. It's like, this is not interesting, it's not boring, it's not fast enough, it's not efficient enough, it's not, I'm not gonna become famous and wealthy and great and I have nothing to show off with my friends, I'm not gonna have a fancy car because that's what's needed, or I keep that, you know, the currency among my friends is to have wonderful recreational opportunities, the more the better, or to visit a lot of movies, something. But to simply be able to learn, to shed all that extra stuff, and feel a profound sense of being at home, contented, at ease, settled, here, is one of the great gifts of a lifetime to become your own friend, to feel like you're deeply at home in this planet, in this life, and at rest, at ease, is a beautiful thing to do. And if you do it well, then maybe you get to be the wise elder who knows and sees people in a deeper way than just the car they drive or the politics they have or whatever it is that people are tuned into. So I've talked now for a while and we did that meditation earlier. Do any of you want to ask any questions now for clarification or about any of the things I've, I've talked about these weeks or today or 
It might be hard to ask questions after your sweet story. <laughs> um, this is kind of specific based on what you were talking about with the flowers and the, the comparison. And um, yeah, I just, I, I really felt what you were saying that comparative thinking is, is the cause of so much suffering. And I was wondering if you had any comments on sort of greedy thinking, which would not be sort of comparison with something concrete, but sort of constant comparison with some sort of ideal that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like my life, everything could always be better. Mm-hmm. And sort of. Well, there's two, there's, there's uh, you know different layers in these things, so that uh, there can be lots of concepts connected to the greed. It could be that the greed is applied to certain concepts ideas of what's going to do for us. But uh, before the greed, there's also concepts that in order to be a successful person, I need to have certain things, and I need to have those things. And then the greed arises out of the need to be a successful person or to be seen well in a society. So it's very complicated, the relationship between, uh, complex between the concepts we live under and the greed. But greed is closer to an emotion. It's an impulse. It's an intention. It's a drive to want something. It, that can exist uh, even without knowing that we're, what we want. It's uh, it's. Uh, I remember when my son was. I don't know how old he was. <clears throat> he was young enough to hold him walking through the aisles of Safeway, and uh, he wanted everything <laughs> there. And, you know, that's a little bit of a problem. And uh, and and uh, at one point he, um, I was holding him, so he was facing me. And it was kind of, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure what was going on, but, but uh, he was holding him. And he, clearly he wanted things. And he reached behind him like this, where he couldn't see, and he wanted that. <laughs> he didn't have to even know what it was there, just the principle he just wanted. So I think some people just have a strong drive for greed. And, um, but uh, what happens in mindfulness practice when the greed is strong, it becomes the object of mindfulness. It becomes what we pay careful attention to. And then as we kind of... And the idea is not to, not to think about it or analyze it. The idea is to really have this quiet mind that just looks at it and sees it. Looks at it physically, looks at it emotionally, looks at it conceptually. All that, just looks at the ecology of it. Just watches. Like, almost like you're leaning against... Like I talked about leaning against that oak tree and just setting back and being relaxed. And just take, taking a clear look and take your time and dial in and tune in and, and over time it begins you start seeing the different component parts of it and you start seeing it's, it's a composite and different and some of those pieces of the, that add up to make the whole greedy event um, are not that interesting, are not worth it and that's why you, people start seeing the great cost of being greedy or being angry being resentful because part of the inner ecology is the cost of it. And uh, generally the cost-benefit analysis does not work out in favor of these kinds of things. Remember there was a, a woman here at IMC who had a bitter divorce and she was really angry at her ex. And that lasted for like 11 years or something. A long time. And then one day she was just minding her own business and and I guess the resentment came up and and she thought to herself, I've been resentful for 11 years 
that no good guy. But for those 11 years, he's been living just a happy life. He probably doesn't think about me hardly ever. Who's getting hurt here? She was being resentful because it's kind of like she wanted to get back at him. And when she saw what a wasted time it was, it had no purpose. I mean, it didn't affect him at all that she was angry. Um, and uh, she's, then, she, then she's put it down. So, you know, she had to wait 11 years to have that wisdom. Mindfulness gives us the wisdom sooner because we start seeing how this operates, seeing how these things come together. Is that, is that an adequate response yeah. to your question? Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you. So straight behind you. So I think... So I think you were saying that when we see we have a choice um, and then with that choice we think about what how we want to choose you can yes sometimes thinking is important and so with that thinking we always choose what's less um, what causes less suffering that's the goal we're not, we, might, we might not necessarily understand what route is, causes less suffering, but we have a better chance to figure that out if we're not caught up in the caught up in ourselves. So um, I don't know if I'm using it in the right example, but let's say we we see a emotion, yeah. we see sadness. Let's let's say we see that, and then we have a choice. Yes. Do we have a choice? If you see sadness? Yes. Oh, you have a choice. Uh, uh, to be sad. Let's, let's, let's choose a different example. Let's choose anger. You see that you're angry. Then you might see that you have a choice whether you tell someone that you're angry at them. You could start yelling at someone, throwing dishes across the kitchen. Uh, or you can see, I'm angry and I'm looking for dishes to throw. I have a choice here. What should I do? And some people in those situations are so impulsive that they don't see the choice. They're just acting impulsively. Mindfulness, hopefully, will give you the space to see what's going on clearly enough that you do have choice. There's a gap, there's a pause where you can say, you know, it looks to me like I'm in danger of throwing plates. I think the best choice is to leave the room. Now, being sad is more common. You don't have a choice of whether you're sad or not. How come we don't have a choice? I mean, uh, isn't that it, the it, same? It, it, sadness tends to come together with a lot. Uh, well, we do have some choice. It depends why we're sad. So, you know, there was this big lottery recently, Lotto or something, remember? Like 1.6 billion. That billion dollars, a lot of money. I could have gotten so sad that I didn't buy. You know, I've never bought a lottery ticket. I should. That was that. That I should have. That was the one I should have bought. I bet. I felt so lucky that last week. I'm so sad. I'm really sad. I hope you feel sorry for me. I could be sad that way, and then I can really look and see. Wait a minute, Gil. This is pretty weird that you're thinking this way. You have some choice here. Just drop this whole thing about lottery and money and 
you know, the studies are that most people who win lotteries are more unhappy a year later. So there I might have some choice. It's so easy, right? But uh, uh, if my best friend just died, do I have a choice? I might have a choice about how I'm with my, my sadness. I might notice that I have a lot of self-pity. Oh, poor Gil, your friend died. It's always so hard. Not fair that I should be the one to have a friend died. Why well, it's always me, poor Gil. If I see what I'm doing, I say, Gil, you're adding a lot of extra self-pity on top of that. The self-pity you have choice over. Let's just sit here quietly and be sad. Maybe you'll cry. But don't add all this stuff on top. So that, that's where the choice is. So that's where you find the choice that's useful. Sometimes it's completely natural and maybe even appropriate to be sad. Does that make some sense? So this is again one of the vani- one of the fantastic things about meditation is to learn to sit, to learn to have the ability to sit still and not move for even 20 minutes and have all kinds of things in life come through. In all kind, you know, over over a lifetime of meditating you, all kinds of things you'll experience and you'll experience times of sadness, of grief, of joy, of happiness, of anger, of all kinds of things will go on. You'll get that di- some kind of terrible diagnosis from the doctor and you'll get, you'll win the lottery. <laughs> you know, all kinds of things will happen in the course of life, right? But to learn to have the ability to sit still and watch it all and not get involved in the concepts, the reactivity, the and just just watch it go by and don't pick it up. Don't be moved by it. Not because we're trying to be a cold, aloof person. Actually, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to learn not to get caught up and entangled with what's going on. And so meditation is kind of like the laboratory or the gym where we're learning the skill, learning the ability to stay balanced, to stay uncaught, not to pick things up, learn to recognize all the different ways that we get caught up. So I might have, you know, feel so much self-pity. Remember, this is one of the first uh, lessons I had when I went to the Zen monastery. Uh, the, um, they have kind of a hazing process to go into a Zen monastery. And uh, you have to kind of sit in the posture I'm sitting in now um, without moving for about seven days. You're allowed to get up and go to sleep. And you're allowed to go to the bathroom after each meal. They serve you where you are. But otherwise, you're supposed to sit this way. And uh, this is a quick way of having pain. So it's kind of like a hazing. And so my, um, and I was young, so, and foolish. And so I had all this uh, pain in my knees. My knees were on fire. And and then I I noticed that if I had self-pity, the knees hurt more. And if I, if I, if I let go of the self-pity, stop pity, stop the self-pitying kind of mental activity, it hurt a little bit less. I think what was happening was the micromuscles would tighten when I had self-pity. And the only way I could survive in that hazing process was um, to be very attentive to my mind and not get, not fall into self-pity, aversion, despair, all these things. 
because I, it, it would translate into my knees. So I learned to, to watch my mind very attentively, carefully, and saw I had a choice. All these subtle things going on. I don't recommend that route for it. That's just an extreme version. But if you sit 20 minutes every day, over time you'll learn all these skills. You'll learn how all this works. You'll learn how the mind succumbs and falls into these traps and how to be free of it. And, and once you learn it in meditation, then it translates to outside meditation. And you have challenging situations outside, but now you know how your mind works. You know how to not get pulled in and caught by it. But that takes, you know, doing it oh, you know, over and over and over again. Uh, you know, it's the, the unfortunate thing about meditation, and maybe fortunate thing, is that um, it's very inefficient. It takes a lot of repetition over and over and over again. But it's worth it. It's, a, it's one of the great, the great trainings in a human life. It's completely worth it, and uh, the benefits so are so wonderful. So, um, and the benefits can be very simple. Could, some people are only only do meditation like this just to have less stress, to de-stress a little bit, so they're a little calmer and can do their work better, or so they can sleep better. And those are great benefits and wonderful things to do. So there's a whole range. And you get to choose, you know, how much you want to get from it. There's, it's a freely given kind of practice, and you can do a little bit of it and get a little bit of benefit. You can do a medium amount and get medium amount of benefit. You can do a lot of it and get a lot of benefit. It's all up to you what you want to do. If you do want to continue with a practice, um, uh, it's uh, generally if most people find it helpful from time to time to, to meditate with a group of people. Uh, there's a number, number of benefits from that. One is that uh, it's encouraging. And I've known people uh, working in some of the corporations around here who do meditation. And they find that as they meditate regularly, some of their values begin to change. And that makes it awkward at work because they're the only ones with different, only ones, they're the only ones at work who don't want to gossip anymore. And, and the gossip is the currency for how to get along with people and they start feeling strange. And there's other values that begin to change. And so coming to a meditation group where people are, whose values are changing in similar ways can be very encouraging. Uh, just just uh, also just, you know, if you don't know anybody who meditates in your life, it can just seem weird that you're doing this. And uh, your parents, you know, scowl. And so uh, you come, come to a meditation group and so you feel like, oh, reassured, it's okay. People here look basically sane and normal enough and so it's a normal thing to do. Um, also, we learn by osmosis. We learn from the example of other people. Uh, we learn kind of in subtle ways, in almost imperceptible ways, we learn how, th- how other meditators are sitting, how they seem to be responding and reacting to all kinds of situations around them. And... Um, and some people find it's a lot easier to sit in silence for 45 minutes in a group than it is to even sit 20 minutes in silence alone at home. So from time to time, it's good. And there's lots of meditation groups all over now. I mean, they just... Uh, I started this group. I was involved in this group since 1990, and there was very little around back then. But now there's all over. The, you know, corporations have meditation groups, and 
YMCA has groups and the senior care facilities has groups and schools have meditations. You know, it's just everywhere now. They have, and if you can't, there's apps and there's even places where you can meditate with people on like Zoom or something. You know, like everyone's sitting around looking at the same. So all kinds of possibilities. Um, and lots of different kinds of meditation groups. You're always welcome to come here. The, the approach of IMC is that um, uh, everything uh, is set up to be uh, casual and easy to come. You can come and go easily. Uh, very little is asked of people when they come here. Um, it's all freely given and just come in and come out. And some people find it remarkable that in kind of public world, there's a place you can go and nothing's asked of you. You just come and sit and be quiet and be with a group of people. And and, um, and so you're always welcome to come here. We have a big, big range of programs that you can uh, participate in. It's in the newsletter and on the website. And I think uh, we have, next starting next week, we have kind of a follow-up on this Intro to Meditation class. It's a kind of, uh, this was the Intro Meditation 1, and then next week there's Intro Meditation for in four weeks, I think, intro meditation two. So kind of take it one more, one little step up. I think there's a flyer. Maybe that's what Tanya's getting. So if you want to continue and get a little bit more support, and um, there's some wonderful people teaching it, and, um, uh, you know, they're very accessible, and they're people who have been practicing it for many years, and so it's a way of getting some more support. So there's lots of ways of being supported here at IMC. So any now that we're coming to the end, any other questions or before, before we finish? Hello, I'm new, so um, I have this question and I won't judge it. What is the statue for? That statue? Uh, that's a statue of Buddha, who was a founder of Buddhism. And uh, we have no idea what he looked like. And um, and so it's partly, for some people, it's an inspiration that come back to the founder and very grateful for his teachings that have somehow been carried through these centuries to us here now. But I think more profoundly, it's kind of an archetype. It's kind of a symbolic image of uh, sitting in a, in a balanced, meditative way, upright, proud, alert, strong. Um, but uh, his eyes are kind of half open. So he's not pulled in and entangled in the world. But he's not closed. He's not disconnected from the world either. The hand here, that gesture, is uh, the Buddha is touching the earth. Because you say it just before he became enlightened. Um, he called upon the earth to be his witness to his enlightenment. And so it's a very important kind of mythic moment for Buddhist idea. So I like it because, you know, it connects us to the natural world. And, and so this, we're part of the natural world and reminded of it. And, um, and often uh, these statues, the chest is often a little bit large. And it's not because he's puffed up, uh, you know, with conceit. But rather, it's uh, because of the meditation on breathing. So it's a kind of it's supposed to give the viewer of the statue a sense of the breathing. And, and some really good statues are built. I saw it in Japan, where uh, you look at the chests of the Buddha, and you, uh, I could almost feel my own breathing. I said, wow, my meditative breathing, what it's like to be in meditation. It kind of somehow they capture that. And it, 
So it's supposed to be inspiration, kind of symbolic inspiration of the possibility of being that kind of way for ourselves. So much so, as some Buddhist teachers say that when we bow to the Buddha, uh, we're bowing to ourselves, to the Buddha nature, the Buddha quality in ourselves. <laughs>